Sky Watchers, thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Ophelia, and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in February in this cosmic diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way, and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark, and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Venus is disappearing from our morning skies this month and won't be visible again until the end of 2024, when it will appear in the winter evenings close to sunset. Fittingly, the last time it's possible to view Venus will be in mid-February, right around Valentine's Day. Venus is the Roman goddess of love, the equivalent of Aphrodite in the ancient Greek mythology, and so, if you want a romantic stargazing object, look close to the horizon in the southeast early in the morning, before the sun rises for the best view, and wave goodbye to the goddess of love for the next few months. If you're after a deep sky object with a similar theme, you can use a telescope to find the Heart Nebula. Unlike most nebulae, it's fairly easy to see where the name of this stellar nursery originated. These clouds of gas and dust within the constellation of Cassiopeia are 7,500 light years away and a popular target for astrophotographers as they appear to form a cartoon heart shape in the sky. We've got a challenge for keen-eyed stargazers this month. If you've got a chance to look up at a very dark sky, February is a good time to observe Lynx, a faint constellation less well-known than its neighbours in the sky, which include Ursa Major and Gemini. This constellation was formed in the late 1600s by Hannes Hevelius, who reportedly said you'd need the eyes of a lynx to spot it. This isn't an option for viewers in London or areas with similar levels of light pollution, but possible for those with darker skies. Lynx will be around the zenith, so the highest point in the sky, directly overhead from around 9 to 10pm throughout February, although this constellation is circumpolar at this time of year and so visible whenever it's dark enough. The main shape of the constellation forms a bent line of stars across the sky, in between Dube and Merak, the pointers of Ursa Major, and Castor and Pollux, the twins of Gemini. What Johannes didn't know when creating this was that at least six of the stars in this constellation have planetary systems of their own. Exoplanets had been theorised as early as the 1500s, but not confirmed until the early 1990s. Imagine what we might find up there 500 years from now. The Lunar New Year falls on the 10th of February this month, with celebrations across the world occurring in the weeks preceding and following this date. The Lunar New Year, as you might have guessed from the name, is based on the lunar calendar. Specifically, it's the night of the second new moon following the winter solstice. So on the night of the 10th of February, you won't be able to see the moon in the sky, as it is in between the Earth and the Sun, and so only the far side, not viewed from the Earth, is being illuminated by the Sun. This means that nights around this time will be particularly dark, without light from the moon washing out the fainter stars, and so amongst the festivities, it could also be a good time for some stargazing. Bode's galaxy, also known as M81, reaches its highest point in the sky, its culmination, around midnight throughout February. With a magnitude of 6.9, you'll need a pair of binoculars or a telescope to view it, 
but if you catch a glimpse, you'll be well rewarded with a few of these grand design spiral galaxy over 12 million light years away. Grand design spirals have prominent and well-defined spiral arms, as opposed to more subtle spiral arms on galaxies like Caldwell 48, known as flocculent spirals. If you want to compare the two types of galaxy, Coldwell 48, also known as NGC 2775, will be visible in the sky as well this month, within the constellation of Cancer. If you're looking for these two around midnight, the first half of the month is ideal, as the second half of the month the waxen moon will be brightening the skies at this time of night. If those in the southern hemisphere want to wake up really early in the morning and look at the planets and the moon align, have a look at the eastern sky on the 9th of February at around 5.30am. High in the sky you'll see the crescent moon, and then about 20 degrees below this, Venus will be shining brightly. Below Venus will be Mars, much fainter, but still visible to the naked eye, and then closest to the horizon is Mercury. This makes Mercury a more difficult planet to spot compared to Mars and Venus. It's fainter, closer to the horizon, where trees and buildings may eclipse your view, and closest to the sun, which may wash out this faint point of light as the sun rises. You could have a look at the planets with a telescope on this morning if you have one, but as always, please be careful not to look at the sun. Later in the month, on the 22nd of February, Mars and Venus will approach each other in the sky, appearing less than one degree apart at 5.30 in the morning in the southeast. There will not be an occultation on this occasion, which is where one planet appears to pass in front of another from our point of view, but when any two objects in the night sky appear very close to each other in this way, we call it a conjunction. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights block on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now, it's time for our cosmic news. Welcome to the cosmic news section of our podcast. I am talking in my news voice for the news section. And in this part of the podcast, we bring you two news stories from astronomy and space science. Now, this is Ophelia's last time for now recording the cosmic news section of the podcast. For now. For now, <laughs> because you might come back as a guest. <laughs> I'm just keeping it open. What if you want to be a guest? Sure. Yeah. And we've got regular old Jess back. <laughs> yes, I was away last month, which meant special Jess was with me, but now we're back to regular Jess. <laughs> um, regular Jess is here. That's such a sad nickname. <laughs> and almost leaving Ophelia is here. <laughs> Welcome back, Jess, to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be back. I've got some exciting news stories for you. Ooh. Do you have a news story for me? I do have a news story for you. Do you want to start first? Yeah, okay. I'll okay. start. Now, these... I've actually got... I've cheated again. I've got two news stories oh, for you. Okay. Yeah, but they're both about landing on the moon. Okay. And they happened within a day of each other, so... <laughs> Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, go for Cool, it. thank you. Um, now, I need to decide which one to tell you about first. Tell you what, I'll go in sort of chronological order. Okay. So this is about the news. Maybe I should maybe I should use the dates. Um, so my first news story is about Peregrine One. Have you heard of Peregrine One? It's a lunar mission. It is a lunar mission. Good guess. And then, 
Um, this was a... Well, it wasn't a NASA mission. It was a, a collaboration between NASA and a commercial company called Astrobotic. Um, I assume that's like robotic, but whenever I read it, I read it as astrobotic. Um, <laughs> so I have to try really hard not to say that during the podcast, but astrobotic. And the idea was they would land on the near side of the moon um, in February, on February the 23rd. Okay. Um, but as you might be able to guess from the fact I'm talking about it now, they are sadly not going to land on the moon oh. on February the 23rd. What happened? Well, the launch was on the 8th of January of this year. Um, launch was on something called a Vulcan Centaur. Centaur? You know, the half-man, half-horse. Centaur? <laughs> Centaur? Centaur. Um, the launch was on the Vulcan Centaur rocket. Um, that went perfectly, which is exciting, because that was the first time this particular class of rocket had been used. Mm. And rocket launches don't always go right mm -hmm. first time, right? Um, this is a rocket which is going to replace the, the Atlas V, which is a sort of previous generation of heavy, heavy launch rockets, um, which is what took curiosity to Mars. Mm. We'll start the journey anyway. But that's being phased out, and instead we have the Vulcan Centaur, which worked. Yay. Um, but very soon after the spacecraft detached from the rocket fairing, um, it developed a leak from an oxidizer tank. So it was from its propellant. And that leak meant that thrust was being developed. So you can imagine um, stuff being shooting out of a hole, effectively. Mm -hmm. And that meant that it couldn't orientate its solar panels towards the sun. Mm. So normally, no matter where the spacecraft is going, like it's going towards the moon in this case... It's always orientating itself, so it's getting light from the sun to charge the batteries. Um, and it couldn't do that because it had oxidizer spewing out of this leak, and that was making it probably spin around effectively. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it was working apart from that, and they still had some control, but they couldn't maneuver it properly. And they were also losing a lot of fuel because of this leak. And they tried very hard to fix the problem, and they did manage to regain some control of the spacecraft. Um, but they just, with that problem, weren't going to be able to land it on the moon. Mm-hmm. So the mission has already been aborted. It's not February yet. Might be when you listen to this. <laughs> um, but instead, it sort of made it away from the Earth towards the moon, and then it was returned to the Earth, and then it was deliberately burnt up in our atmosphere on the 18th of January. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So didn't they have some special cargo on board? Yes. I wasn't aware of this. I missed this entirely <laughs> first time around. <laughs> Um, because it had scientific payloads, mm -hmm. but it also had the ashes and DNA of apparently about 70 people, um, including people you may have heard of, such as Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction author. Mm. So that must have been quite a small part of its payload. Um, but it also had had research potential, so yeah. it was there to do research. Um, so the aims of it, the scientific objective of the mission, were to study the lunar exosphere, which is the the atmosphere of the moon, but not a real atmosphere, like thin, few, the very, very thin atmosphere of the moon. Um, look at the thermal properties of the moon, the hydrogen abundance of the lunar soil, look at the magnetic field of the moon, and then the radiation environment as well. And then the ashes of 70 people. Um, I mean, it would have been a really big deal had it landed on the moon. Mm. Um, it would have been the first commercial mission to the moon um, because of this astrobotic mm -hmm. involvement. Um, and it would have also been the first time the US landed on the moon since 1972. Wow. Yeah, so that would have been their first soft landing, their first non-crash since 1972. And 1972 was Apollo 17, so the last crewed mission to the moon. Yeah. Um, the US has not been back since. Yeah. They've had some successful satellites, orbiters, but no soft landings. Hmm. 
And uh, Astro Botics, they were once of the Google Luna X Prize about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, the, it was this like competition mm-hmm. to send something to the moon to land safely on the moon, and I, I don't think anyone actually managed it. No, if that was all co- companies, yeah, there hasn't yet been yeah. a commercial landing, so still hasn't. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's not a it's not a failure because you can still learn things from missions of this type. Mm-hmm. Um, the instrumentation was all switched on and sort of communicated with when it was in flight, um, and there was even some readings of the radiation radiation environment between the Earth and the Moon. So okay. the, the instruments would have worked had yeah. they, could they have got to the surface, um, and they can learn lessons from the the failure. So they think there was some kind of valve that got stuck, which meant the pressure got increased, which meant the thing ruptured mm, right. and it was spewing out the propellant. Okay. Um, the oxidizer it was. Um, so this was part of the Artemis missions in a roundabout way. So the plan to have crewed return to the moon. Mm-hmm. This was part of a step of the Artemis missions called Commercial Lunar Payload Services, which is CLPS <laughs> in the acronyms. Um, so CLPS is the idea that to return to the moon, it won't just be NASA. It'll be NASA plus commercial partners. So NASA has many, many missions planned in the next few years that will involve NASA research and partnership and then lots of different commercial companies involved. So Astrobotic, in fact, are going to have another go. They probably wouldn't use that language. <laughs> <laughs> going to give it a shot um, towards the end of this year. So they're going to have another land to go to the moon. Okay. Um, and there's going to be another one, possibly very soon, in the next few months, um, from Intuitive Machines. Um, and that will be a that will launch on a, a Falcon Nine, which is a SpaceX rocket. Um, their data says no earlier than February twenty twenty four. Oh, okay. So soonish. True. Yeah. Um, and that will be a lander towards the south pole of the moon, Ooh. which is where the crewed Artemis mission will eventually be. Yeah. Yeah. One of the instruments was developed by the Open University, and Rao Space. So it was mm-hmm. a UK instrument. Mm-hmm. That was the Peregrine Iron Trap Mass Spectrometer. Pitmus. Pitmus. <laughs> <laughs> One final update on Artemis, yeah. and this is linked to Artemis, so it doesn't count as a news story, is it was announced earlier this month that they're pushing back Artemis 2, and so Artemis 3 as well. Mm-hmm. So Artemis 1 was the trial launch of an uncrewed human-rated spacecraft, and then this year they were going to send Artemis 2 to the moon, and that would have been a crewed launch to the moon, but not landing on the moon. Um, but they've pushed it back to no earlier than September 2025. Okay. Which means the landing on the moon is now set for no earlier than the end of 2026. But people are saying probably not. That would be that would be great, but maybe later than 2026. Because to land on the moon with people, they're going to have to do um, have to have the human landing system, which is what they've called their their landing mechanism. And again, that's a commercial partner, so that's being developed by SpaceX currently. And before people use it, there'll have to be mul- there'll have to be tests of it landing on the moon without people on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that hasn't happened yet. It's called Starship, the human landing system developed by SpaceX. And, and I just don't like the name because it's not a starship. It's a moonship. <laughs> anyway, my second news story is that on the 19th of Jan, just after Peregrine 1 burnt up in the atmosphere... Um, Japan successfully soft-landed on the moon. Yay! Yay! Um, they became the fifth nation to ever land on the moon. Can you name all five nations that have landed on the moon? 
US, uh-huh. India, uh-huh. China, uh-huh. Russia, Soviet, mm-hmm. Japan. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> Don't know why I put tests in. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's only the US, the Soviet Union, China and India that have soft landed on the moon. Soft landed means not crashed, um, which is hard landing. <laughs> <laughs> and it was on the 19th of Jan, and it was called SLIM which stands for Smart Lander for Investigating the Moon. They were trialling new technologies for pinpoint landing, so they want to land really accurately where they, where they plan to land, effectively. Um, and it seems to have gone really well, mostly, mm-hmm. but they're still analysing data. So they, they can't say that it was the best landing ever, but it was a really good landing. They've nicknamed it Moon Sniper, because of how Ooh. accurate it is. Shoot, straight at the moon. Um, so Slim landed on the 19th of January. Um... Possibly successfully, however, the solar panels are not charging the batteries, which is sad because it needs the batteries in order to operate on the moon for the length of time it wants to operate. Mm. Um, they don't know why, but the, they think that it's because they're orientated the wrong way. So, oh, no. A bit like Peregrine 1, they're not pointing at the sun right yeah. now. Um, but it's possible that as the moon moves around the Earth this month, they'll come into sunlight at the angle they need to. Mm-hmm. So after about three hours after touchdown, they turned it off. So the whole spacecraft is turned off, and that's to preserve the battery it has left, mm-hmm. which means it can then restart if it's in the sunlight and then hopefully do its science. Mm-hmm. So it landed softly, um, but it's not operating. Like, it works, but it's not charging. Do you know how long they need to wait to turn it back on until it's potentially facing the sun? No, it's there's still a lot of uncertainty in exactly where it's facing, okay. but it's days to weeks, so it's not like it'll be on suddenly mm-hmm. in the middle of June. It's... Yeah. Either it's going to get some sunlight soon or it's not. Mm. Um, It's on the near side of the moon. um, And it launched... This is why I couldn't decide on my timeline, because this launched last year in (laughs) September 2023 (laughs) and took a really leisurely, like, low fuel consumption route to the moon. Um, And it's been in orbit since Christmas Day, so it's been getting ready for this. I know it's not alive, but but it's been preparing (laughs) for ages. Um, And then it didn't work fully. Um, and my favourite bit of this mission is it has two tiny, tiny rovers. Um, <laughs> you can't see on the podcast, but I'm showing with my hands how tiny they are. I mean, I, I, you showed me a video of one and um, it fit in, in, in a person's palm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're called LEV-1 and LEV-2 and LEV is Lunar Excursion Vehicle. Um, so LEV-1 is bigger. It weighs about two kilograms. And that kind of hops along the surface um, and that can communicate directly with earth which is quite impressive for something so small normally mm. it would be relayed via the rover or via a satellite or something but it's talking directly to earth and it's working that's operating fine um, and then that has a camera plus some science payloads and then lev 2 is the one that's only 250 grams and eight centimeters across so it'll oh. fit in your hand like a tennis ball and it is vaguely tennis ball shaped but then once it lands the two halves of the tennis ball shape sort of come apart and act as two wheels, and there's a little camera system in the middle, um, which is super cool. And it was designed in collaboration with a company called Tomi, or Tommy, I'm not sure, which is a toy manufacturer. Um, and they are the toy manufacturers that have designed some of the Transformers toys. <laughs> so the idea is like it's like a little rover transformer because it's a ball and it pops open. <laughs> um, and they were talking, there was a press release where they spoke about how that might inspire a generation of children to become lunar scientists, right? Seeing a toy roll around on the moon. 
Um, but also I'm going to read you a quote from a researcher who says, moreover, we adapted the robust and safe design technology for children's toys, which reduced the number of components used in the vehicle as much as possible and increased its reliability. So they're saying <laughs> children really batter their toys, right? <laughs> so you need toys that are reliable and don't break easily. And they use that design to make a rover that is reliable and doesn't break easily. <laughs> Uh, I thought that was cool. And that one has a little camera. And it communicates via Lev 1, which then communicates with Earth. How long are these rovers um, predicted to last for? A couple hours. Okay. Yeah, so they're, they're like trials, test yeah. experiments. Um, but the only other... There's an active rover on the moon, which is U-22, uh, which is a, a Chinese rover on the far side of the moon. And then the Soviet Union had rovers on the moon a long time ago. Um, and then these will be the next two. So there haven't been many lunar rovers. Mm. Um, is the Indian one, a, is that a lander, not a rover? It is a rover. It's just not currently active. Mm. It's it's finished its mission. Okay. Um, but you're right, there's that one as well, which is Pragyan Wisdom, I think. Um, Japan's had a couple of unsuccessful missions recently. So they had a CubeSat, which would have been a lunar lander, um, which launched with Artemis 1. That was called... Omenten, Omenten Tashi, um, but that was unsuccessful. It left the spacecraft, the rocket, but it didn't turn on properly. Mm. Um, and then in April last year, there was another attempt for a private company to be the first landing on the moon. That was called iSpace. That was a Japanese company, um, but they had a hard landing on the moon, oh. which meant they crashed. Um, and that was also carrying a rover. That was the Emirates rover, but that didn't survive the crash. Mm. It's a lot of interest around the moon. Mm, it's the place to be. Mm. I think it's really interesting that it's different to last time, effectively, as in um, there's still a political element to it, obviously, but it's involving a lot more countries than last time and also the commercial mm -hmm. elements. Um, and I think when people hear things crashing or things not being built yet, they think about how they might think it's unrealistic to go back. But the first ever soft landing on the moon was 1966. So before that, no no nation at all had ever landed something on the moon gently. Mm -hmm. They'd only hit it. Mm -hmm. um, and three years later was yeah. Apollo 11. Yeah. <laughs> so things can move quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, USSR last landed on the moon in 1976. That was Luna 24. And then Luna 25 is what crashed last year. So Russia has never landed on the moon as a nation mm. what do you think about the moon landings i think it's great that we're going back to the moon and more people more more nations mm. um and private companies are getting involved i just worry where that might lead to mm -hmm. it is especially if there are resources which can be yeah. utilized from the moon it's going to become a question of of ownership and property rights yeah. And, and borders and things. Um, but um, I mean, mining things, you know, we mine the earth for however many hundreds of years, left scars behind. Mm -hmm. One argument is there are no ecosystems to disrupt on the moon. True. But there is science to disrupt. Yeah. So any kind of commercial mining, you'd hope, wouldn't take precedence over the, the research on the moon. Mm. We also need a whole new branch of the legal system mm. for outer space, which isn't quite in place yet, mm -hmm. to sort of 
not control, manage, manage mm-hmm. all of the competing interests on the moon. Um, the Artemis Accords, which is the sort of, not just the protocol for Artemis, but is this big new thing which quite a few nations have signed. It goes some way towards that, but it's very vague. But it's positive and vague, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. So we'll return to the moon, hopefully soon, hopefully people soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was my two news stories where I fit a bunch of other stuff in as well. Paragon mm-hmm. 1 and Slim. Great. Okay. What's your news story? My news story? Well, I've got a question for you. Mm-hmm. What colours are the planets? Okay. Do you want me to start from the start? Go on then. Mercury is grey. Mm-hmm. Venus is yellow. Mm-hmm. Earth is mostly blue. <laughs> uh, Mars is kind of like a brownie orange. Mm-hmm. Um, Jupiter has got the red and orange and the white. Uh, Saturn, yellow. Cream. How would you describe that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Uranus is blue in my head. It's I know it's people say it's green, but in my head Uranus is the light blue one and Neptune is the dark blue one. Okay. Neptune is darker than Uranus. Okay. Yeah. And why did you say that they're they're those colours? Have you seen them with your eyes or I've seen them through a telescope. Okay. Um, but I've mainly seen pictures. Because we work in a planetarium, so I mainly see photos of the planets. Cool. And and these photos are taken by Telescopes. Telescopes. I guess space telescopes, spacecraft space often craft. approaching them. I feel like I'm being tested. <laughs> you tested me earlier. <laughs> so what I'm trying to lead to is uh, lately, recently, some astronomers reprocessed some old photos, some old images of Neptune um, and found that it's not as blue as most people think it is. Um, and that's because of um, how those old images were processed at the time. So our eyes have millions of receptors mm-hmm. uh, called rods and cones, and they convert light um, into signals that our brains can um, sort of use to see the world around us. And the colours that each of us see kind of vary. So my version of blue might be slightly different to your version of blue, which I think kind of comes from your description earlier of Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, we've got people who have um, colour blindness, for example. And in general, human eyes see um, wavelengths of light between about 380 to 700 nanometers. Mm-hmm. So this is part of the electromagnetic spectrum that covers the visible light or optical light. So it goes from like red to you know blue, uh, violet. Mm-hmm. Um, but most cameras on spacecraft and, and telescopes and things take black and white images. Oh, interesting. Um, And they use a a combination of different filters as well. Um, So they take a black and white image with one filter and then take another black and white image with a different filter, for example. And different telescopes have different types of filters, depending on what the main purpose of that telescope is or what question it's trying to to answer. Um, And that's why the same planet might look different uh, depending on what telescope took that picture. Mm-hmm. And also, make things a bit more confusing, <laughs> some filters that they use go beyond the colours that our eyes can see. Uh, so, for example, the Akatsuki probe, uh, which is the Japanese spacecraft around Venus, 
Um, it's got filters that are in visible light, but also in ultraviolet light and infrared light. And then people here um, can process the image. They, they combine all those different images taken with the different filters to make one final image. And because we're using different filters or very specific colors, um, they, they can't always give us a true representation of what our eyes can see. So mm. Mars might not be as red as we think it is, for example. And like we saw, Neptune isn't as uh, blue as some people thought it was. Um, so the original image of Neptune was taken by Voyager 2 when it flew by the planet in the late 1980s. Voyager 2 uh, has two cameras. Um, they each have eight filters. Um, so the wide-angle camera has filters that cover almost every colour in, in visible light. Mm -hmm. um, but the, uh, um, the narrow-angle camera has orange, green, blue and violet filters. So they only let through those certain colours. Mm -hmm. um, plus an ultraviolet filter. Mm. And when we got the images back, scientists wanted them to highlight Neptune's clouds. Um, and so by processing those images to, to bring out those clouds, the colours were more saturated than they were, and uh, Neptune turned out more blue than, than it actually would. And actually, to be fair, the team did say that it was an enhanced image uh, of Neptune, but people kind of forgot about that. Mm. <laughs> and so <laughs> over time, over the last 40 years or so, people just kind of assume that Neptune um, is that blue. Yeah. I think people maybe don't realise how few photos of Neptune we have, right? Yes. Because very few spacecraft have flown past it. So that one from Voyager is, is the one. Yes. Although that series. I just want to see, if you Google the word Neptune, I wonder if the Voyager photo is the first photo. Um, other space telescopes have seen mm. uh, Neptune and actually ground-based telescopes as well. So the Hubble Space Telescope, I've seen it multiple times. There are infrared uh, telescopes looking at it. Um, and you, you could actually see that some of the Hubble images look more green than, than those Voyager 2 images. Is this green? Yes, yeah, so that is the... <laughs> Jess, Jess has shown me a picture of, of Neptune. <laughs> And I think it's showing the reprocessed image of Neptune where it is slightly more green. It is. So for everyone that has my eyes, by green we mean really light blue. <laughs> <laughs> um, interestingly, sorry to disrupt your facts, um, Wikipedia has already updated. So Wikipedia now uses the, the one that makes it identical to Uranus. Yeah. But yes, if you Google image the word Neptune, the first five or six photos are all the Voyager two images of dark blue Neptune. Right. Including our website, BBC Sky at Night, National Geographic Society. <laughs> if we're name dropping. <laughs> um, but Neptune is slightly, slightly more blue than, than Uranus. And that's because um, it's got a thinner haze layer. Mm. And so it doesn't reflect, um, or it reflects more blue light than, than Uranus does. Mm. Sorry, you were saying that the Voyager image is dark blue, mm -hmm. and there have been subsequent images which show it more true to life, but we just have the other one. We just don't, we sort of haven't been considering the other images. Yeah, I guess yeah. because the Voyager 2 ones, they're, you know, they're the nearby, they're the, I guess, close up 
image mm. of the planet. That's the one that kind of sticks out the most. It's the one with the most detail. It's the one that shows yeah. a great dark spot and all those clouds. Um, and yeah, so a lot of the Hubble images actually should make it look more green. And that's because it's got different filters mm. in front of its cameras. Because Hubble uses ultraviolet a fair extent, right? It goes yes. into the UV part of the spectrum. It goes into UV. It can also see um, visible as well. Mm-hmm. And then we have a JWST image of Uranus yep. and Neptune. And Neptune. But that's mostly infrared, so you, it's, I, go, I would call it false colour. But what you're saying is that all of it is false colour, yeah. effectively. <laughs> we... Yeah. For yeah. It, almost, almost every single space photo out there is false colour. Um, so it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> the only way that we can know for sure what what you know what colours things are is by seeing them ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we just need to uh, orbit these planets ourselves <laughs> <laughs> and see what they look like. But actually, the planets themselves can change colour slightly depending on the seasons mm-hmm. um, and sort of the the weather. Um, on that planet at the time. Tell me more. Um, so Neptune is a, a pale blue colour with a hint of green. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uranus is a, a pale greenish blue. Um, it looks more blue when the equator is facing the Earth and more green when the poles are facing oh, the interesting. Earth. Interesting. And because of Uranus's tilt, we can see the equator and the poles. Yes. Whereas we can't really for the other planets to the no. same extent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's because... Um, there's less methane at the poles. Hmm. Um, and so the methane uh, reflects blue light and absorbs uh, red and green light. Um, Saturn is a pale yellowy beige uh, with pastel yellow-brown cl- cloud bands. Beautiful um, description. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. Um, the rings um, are different shades of grey um, and, and sometimes light brown depending on the angle that you're looking them at mm, brown uh, rings in a beige planet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jupiter is also beige. <laughs> what? <laughs> With yellow, brown, white, uh, red, and orange. Um, and actually, um, different telescopes see the Great Red Spot as slightly different shades of red. That's true, because there's been some debate about it changing colour over the last few mm-hmm. decades, but also it's difficult to match it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mars is usually red, orange, brown, uh, with white polar caps. But because Mars has seasons, those ice caps grow and shrink with the seasons. So when uh, it gets warmer, the ice caps sublimate, sublimate turn from a solid ice to, uh, to a gas, and they can form clouds and can make Mars look slightly rest, less red. Mm. Um, and also it can have dust storms that can cover up some of the uh, surface features. Um on the planet, Earth, blue, green, brown, white. Um, Venus is actually bright white. Is it really? Uh, with yellow beige hues. Hmm. Um, and actually, to the human eye, it's very difficult to see any cloud patterns on Venus. Oh. Um, any cloud patterns that you see in pictures are because that camera was using ultraviolet light. I did not know that. So if we went to Venus and orbited Venus, I know it's very reflective, that's why it's so yeah. easy to see for example, in the early mornings in February. But do you think would be? Do you think it would be too bright for our eyes? So it's just a shining. All the light from the sun is reflecting Ooh. off those clouds. So we just see it as like white glare. Oh, maybe. Man, I need to go look at Venus. Yeah. 
Yeah. You need you need a space graph first. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> and finally, Mercury is uh, is is grey and slightly brown as well, mm-hmm. bit like the moon. Yeah, I was gonna say this makes me think of the the idea that the moon is like the same shade as tarmac. It's a really right. dark grey, but because it's the brightest thing out there, it looks like a white colour. Yeah, yeah. Um, so many lies <laughs> <laughs> slash optical illusions, but that's really cool. I like how they change with the seasons. Mm. I guess the Earth will also change. It's it's more varied. So it's not like the whole thing becomes brown or the whole thing becomes mm-hmm. green. Yeah. Um, but we must look different during different times of the year. Yeah. Right now, let's see all the storms above us. <laughs> <laughs> so, if anyone hasn't seen the reprocessed image of Neptune, go and look at Uranus and Neptune side by side. And to somebody with apparently very poor color vision like me, they're the same color. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you were right all along. Yeah, we use models of the planets in some of our workshops and Ophelia laughs when I get Uranus and Neptune confused because <laughs> the colours are so similar to me I was right all along it's been years <laughs> no one believed me <laughs> um, but does it do you think it matters that this, these images are, are have different or, or wrong colours I think it's it's interesting that from it's almost like when a child draws all the planets, each planet has a, a feature, right? Yeah. It's like drawing Jupiter and then drawing the red spot. If Jupiter doesn't have its red spot, it's still the same planet, but we give each one a defining feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just difficult from like a narrative perspective to be like Uranus and Neptune, same colour, same composition, out mm-hmm. there, same size. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're right, it doesn't really relate to whether it's right or not, because it's just not human eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, it does make me really want to go and look at all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's what got me into astronomy in the first place. Because I wanted to see what all these different things actually looked like. I never trusted those pictures in the first place. (laughs) You're right to be suspicious. (laughs) Have you seen Neptune through a telescope? I have not. No, not Neptune. Because through a a telescope in your garden, it will just look like a circle, right? So you wouldn't see much colour. Yeah, you might see a slightly sort of bluish colour. Um, so I read somewhere that Neptune does look slightly more blue from a you know a telescope that you might have. Um, partly because of how small it looks, so it's about half. Oh, it looks to be about half the size as Uranus because it's that much further away and it's mm. getting less sunlight as well. Mm. Um, oh, so it will look a darker blue just because it's darker. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you think it matters? What the real colours are? Um, so, I mean, the reason why we take these images mostly is for the science. Mm. And they've chosen that particular filter that can see or that can let through a particular colour for a reason. Um, I think for the public, I think as long as they are told that this is an enhanced picture or false colour or is this true to what we could see as, as, as possible then I think it's okay but I think the way this story came out makes it sound like scientists have been lying to them all along mm. yeah which isn't a narrative you want I guess no um, because when we show pic- people pictures of galaxies yeah, that's not what it would look like through your telescope and we'll never know what it will look like through your eyes because we can't travel to other galaxies. Mm. 
Um, so yeah, you want to represent the truth, but we only have one type of truth. We only have one. <laughs> but also at the same time, you want these images to look as good as they can be mm-hmm. for the public. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what gets them into astronomy and I guess start them talking. Yeah. I mean, I like looking at the clouds on Venus. If it was just white, it would just be a white circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I think it kind of ties into, you know, the main purpose of these images is the science. Mm-hmm. Imagine if, if all of our instruments, all of our detectors can only see visible light. How much of the universe are we missing? Mm-hmm. Very true. Mm. I think we should end on that momentous note. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing I ever said on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> ba, ba, ba. Well, what we should do is share some pictures of Uranus and Neptune on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So you can have a look at the colours. Oh, I'll also share this little rover robot <laughs> rolling around because I think that's cute. If I can... If I'm allowed to share it, I'll check the permissions. And then this month, if you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, you can say bye-bye, Ophelia, uh, <laughs> since they are quitting. And then... <laughs> so we'll put some photos of Uranus and Neptune up on our Twitter account. Um, so if you haven't seen the new photos, you can you can look at them. And let us know what you think, whether you like these new reprocessed images, or whether you prefer the old, darker Neptune. Mm. Maybe it's going to be a generational thing, like Pluto. Mm, yeah, kids don't care that Pluto used to be a planet. <laughs> 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 Only people who are adults in 2024 will care that Neptune used to be a slightly different colour. <laughs> <sighs> and with that, for the final time, for me at least, keep looking up. Beautiful. Woo. Bye, Ophelia. Bye. Sad. Mm-hmm.